But here's the thing, as a, a church, we're stepping into this moment watching that documentary because we realize as a culture and as the church, God's church, the only way we're going to grow in unity, the only way we're going to step into moments of unity is when we step through those uncomfortable moments, those uncomfortable conversations. So on November, I almost said July, whew, I'm behind, November 5th, our service is going to be from 5 p.m. to 7 p.m. So about 30 minutes longer than usual, but our church services are a little shorter than others. So, you know, two hours isn't too long, but plan to be here from 5 to 7 p.m. two weeks from tonight because we're going to watch that documentary. Uh, Zion Community Church, pastored by Ben Fitzgerald, they're going to be here in the building with us. We're going to watch that documentary, and then we're going to dialogue together afterwards for about 30 minutes. And the point for all of that is not to tell you what to think, but it's to encourage us all to think. Because I think one of the, the big symptoms of our sinful nature is the narcissistic and sometimes subconscious way that we think our experience is the valid one. And that it's the one in which all judgments are made. And sometimes you don't need a, a new perspective or your perspective isn't wrong. You just need to add other people's perspective and broaden your lens. It's what I love about the church. We recognize all the time that there's a wealth of wisdom here. There's people here that know things we don't, but there's also a wealth of experience. There's people here that have experienced things that we haven't experienced. And when you step into that and you share experiences, you can grow in your empathy. And when you grow in empathy, we'll grow in unity. And, and you know what? If you limit your circle in life, you'll limit your growth. But if you increase your circle, those people that speak into your life, you will grow all the more. So that's the, that's the idea of that night. And we're starting a series this week called Race and Politics. It's going to take us through most of November. And we're going to be here because these are two areas where we see that people are most entrenched, most polarized, and most split. Because when I say things like racism, liberal, privilege, conservative, some of those words alarms go off and we kind of put walls up and we hesitate. But when events like the events of the past months, racially charged murders, where other incidents where police themselves are getting shot, where we've got an election cycle where there seems to be more scandal than there is potential. When all these things are going on, sometimes it's so easy to, to mind the line in the sand and stay on your side where people think like you, people look like you, and we dig in. Again, race and politics are two places where these conflicts occur, and we so often retreat to our trenches to people who think like us. And all too often, we do the same in the church, and that's how we settle into disunity. Sure, we, we tolerate others, but we're relationally separate. And it minimizes friction, but it also lessens growth. There's little harmony, and there's no unity. And, you know, unity is not a sideline issue in the church. Unity is an essential issue in the church. Unity has everything to do with God's presence or God's absence. You look at the family unit in 1 Peter 3, 7, fellas. Peter says, hey, if you're not living in unity with your wife, you're not caring for your wife the way you need to, don't, don't even worry about praying because you've just put a ceiling on your prayer life. God wants unity in your marriage. And in the same way with the bride of Christ, the church, unity is an essential issue. It was one of the core reasons that Jesus went to the cross. If we read in Ephesians Chapter 2, verses 14 through 16 says, For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. 
He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. Come on, unity was one of the reasons that Christ went to the cross. And unity was one of his prayers before he went to the cross. In John chapter 17, verse 21, Jesus prays to God the Father, I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. See, this prayer for unity is directly tied to his prayer for our witness. And if his name is going to be made great and God's glory is going to be revealed in our generation, it's going to take unity. You know, the end game of reconciliation and unity, the end game of reconciliation isn't just reconciliation and unity. It's so that we can have a greater witness to the world and glorify God better as a unified church. Without unity, we'll block the witness of Christ. And again, two places we see people most entrenched, polarized, and split down the middle is race and politics. And tonight, we're simply going to lay the groundwork for this series. We're going to talk about the Bible's emphasis on unity and the church's call to champion it, even in and especially in race and politics. And let's just get this out of the way early. Unity isn't uniformity. It's people of all different backgrounds, diverse backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, different uh, ways of thinking, but they all pursue one common purpose. You know, God's word lays out the purpose we're called to run after. And let's just trust in this series that God's word can speak on this and these subjects. You know, my prayer as I've been preparing for this series is, God, I myself has a limited perspective. So let your word and your grace and your Holy Spirit just permeate every sermon so that we can receive his truth. Can we, can we even pray right now? Lord God, we just pray and we thank you, God, that these big issues in life that can so commonly cause strife and division, you didn't beat around the bush, you didn't avoid them, Lord God, but you dealt with them even in your word. We thank you that your word is real and relevant even today. And Lord God, tonight we just pray that your word would plant a seed that would bear fruit. God, that paradigms, ways of thinking, Lord God, they would shift and they would focus on your goodness, your grace, and your gospel. And that through all of this, we'd have a better witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we'd be an effective church with an effective witness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So Thursday night, the, the Packers played the Bears, talking about football, NFL. It was almost the 200th time they played each other. So in the NFL, they're called the NFL's oldest rivalry. And in my family, this was a significant rivalry. Because my dad, he grew up around the Chicago area, so he was a Bears fan. He was part of his side of the family that moved down from Wisconsin to the Chicago area. So there was a healthy amount of beef between the Packers fans and Bears fans in the family. I remember going to my grandmother's house outside Chicago. She was like neutral territory. You would open up the cupboards, and there were pint glasses that had both Packers mugs and Bears mugs. So I even have some at my house to remember her by. But because it was family... And shared blood. You know, that there was a rivalry, but it was still friendly. Never got crazy. But talk about crazy. Steph and I went to a Packers game. The playoff game between the Redskins and the Packers last winter. And I shared about this once, but there was no common bloodline that kept people unified. Matter of fact, the one common factor was most people had alcohol in their bloodstream. More and more as the game went on. And the things that came out of people's mouths, obscene just doesn't even describe it. 
Not just directed at the players wearing the opposite uniform on the field, but directed at anybody wearing an opposing uniform in the stands. And again, as the game goes on, just more and more drinking. And I remember there was a guy behind us wearing a Packers jersey, a big guy. And there were about four guys, maybe three or four rows behind him, who clearly couldn't see how big he was. And they kept just verbally abusing him. By like the end of the third quarter, he got up and he was like, oh, you want to share abuse? He was like, I will physically abuse you. And he had four friends that had to hold him back. And in the moment, Steph, who's perpetually like a mother figure, is like, oh, let me hold your beers for you. I was joking her afterwards and she's like, I didn't want them to spill on me. But there's a psychology to sports and sporting events. You may laugh, you may roll your eyes, especially as a woman, like, oh, this testosterone, right? But we're all sucked into us versus them groupings. It flows from instinct for survival over human history. There's protection in groups. There's pooled resources in groups. There's satisfaction in the need to belong, this deep longing we have to belong to something. We find that in groups. But you know, there's also downsides, that simply acting As a member of a group, it can change how people behave. People's thoughts, their behavior, and feelings towards other changes when it goes from me and you to us and them. People have a more aggressive template for group-on-group versus one-on-one interactions. The gloves come off and indecency follows, or biblically speaking, grace just goes out the window, and often division ensues, and it takes root. And, you know, it results in displacement of responsibility for immoral behavior. When we act as a part of a group, we feel less responsible for bad outcomes. We get swept up in acting as a part of a group and lose touch with our own personal moral code. But think about the groups we get caught up in in life. Like back in the day when I was young. I'm not a kid anymore. But anyways, for me as a kid, Marvel, DC. Had to pick one. Couldn't be both. Who was, who was with Marvel. Who was with DC? Yes. <laughs> Star Wars and Star Trek. Couldn't be passionate about both as a kid. Like, you had to choose one. For me, I've shared many times it was Star Wars. But I mean, you guys were Star Trek. You were probably the more intellectual, right? Yes, Ben. Holding it down for Star Trek. What about uh, if you weren't balling, if you were balling on a budget, you had to choose between Nintendo and Sega? Couldn't be both. Matter of fact, I didn't have either. So my friends, like whose friend's house I was going to, it depended on what system I wanted to play. But I was, I was all about Nintendo all day. You know, we're not done with nostalgia just because we're done with the, the Stranger Things series, right? <laughs> but if I was born a little later and I was a girl, I might have been swept up in, what was it, Team Edward versus Team Jacob? Yeah, all right, I got it right. I'm ashamed of that, deep down. Uh, team Peta and Team Gale. Yeah. But as adults... There's still those us versus them groups, Republican and Democrat, liberal, conservative, black and white, blue lives and black lives, all these places where we draw a line in the sand and separate one from the other, us versus them. And in some escalated cases, it can result in crusades, conflicts, even war. You know, World War I had a legit beef between us and them the Allies and the Central Powers. It was one of the deadliest conflicts in history. Historians say anywhere from 8 to 12 million soldiers passed away in these battles for four terrible years. And one of the reasons was because of something called trench warfare. And this wasn't in the plans of anybody going into the war, but the weapons of of defense were so much greater than the weapons of offense that everybody just had to bunker down and fight for inch by inch. And, And our instinct took over and we dug downward. 
Members of humanity that have built cathedrals and monuments, clawed into dirt, scarring the earth, and just building this house of horrors that so many hundreds of thousands of soldiers would live in and die in over the course of World War I. The result was static slaughter. War became a battle over this cratered dead piece of territory that became known as no man's land. And of course, eventually that war ended. And the Treaty of Versailles, though it was so punitive and it was punishing Germany so bad that it created this desperate situation that was fertile ground for the Nazis and Hitler to rise to power. And that's how World War II started. And that's where we get this upcoming movie called Hacksaw Ridge. I don't know if you've seen the previews, but it's about a soldier named Desmond Doss, who in the midst of the Pacific conflict of World War II, he refused to bear arms. Rather, his focus was to save lives and the lives of as many men as possible. Now, whether the movie will be any good, I don't know. Time will tell, but the story is a powerful one. And it's a powerful reminder for us as believers because we wake up every day in the middle of a conflict. No matter what circumstance we're in, every day we wake up part of a conflict. Ephesians 6 reminds us powerfully. But we don't battle against flesh and blood. So our weapons don't look like the weapons of the world, and our fight doesn't look like the world's. We don't fight from trench to trench over some no man's land, us versus them, but God asks us to step over no man's land, over lines in the sand, and love even our enemies, even them, even those people. You know, John 3.16 is the one that gets all the publicity, and it's, it's at those games, those football games, and in the stadiums, and you, you see people quoting it left and right. But John 3.17 is a powerful verse as well. It says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. Through him. You know, we aren't called like Jesus wasn't called to execute and to execute judgment, but to see people saved and unified under the blood of Christ. You know, in, in Greek, the word that we see translated here for condemn, it literally means to separate one from the other. Jesus didn't come to separate one from the other. It's, it's one reason that the word condemn is also uh, translated judge in some translations, because when you judge, you separate the good from the bad and you judge the bad. And the Israelites, when Jesus came, they lived separate from the Gentiles with a healthy, a healthy dose of us versus them, Jews and Gentiles. Jews being the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from the Messianic line, and, and Gentiles being the other folks, everyone else. And at the time Jesus came, the common belief was that the Messiah, the Old Testament prophesied, would eliminate the Gentile world. Common exposition of the Old Testament would claim this. It's entirely possible that Nicodemus, who Jesus is talking to in John 3, this religious leader, he had been taught this and he was teaching this. But Jesus declares the supremacy of love and grace. He didn't come to condemn, but to save. He didn't come to eliminate, but to show grace. He didn't come to separate, but to unify and bring together under his blood. You know, the first use of a flamethrower was by Germans in World War I as they attacked trenches. By World War II, napalm was developed. This, explos this explosion that would uh, soak just bunkers and trenches and other impenetrable places with walls of fire. And in the Gospels, we see the disciples basically ask to drop napalm from the heavens onto a Samaritan village. You might ask why. That seems so drastic. Well, let's turn to Luke 9. We're going to look at verses 51 through 56. We're going to be here for basically the rest of the night. It's Luke chapter 9. Verses 51 through 56. It says, as the time drew near for him to ascend to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. 
He sent messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to prepare for his arrival. But the people of the village did not welcome Jesus because he was on his way to Jerusalem. When James and John saw this, they said to Jesus, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven to burn them up? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. So they went on to another village. Again, that seems so drastic. Like if there's a Sunday, I want to watch football, and I want to go over to Nate's house because he's got a nice little theater set up, and I asked to come, and he says, no, I can't come. I'm not going to be like, well, I'm going to bomb his house, right? That just seems like they're just crossing the line so quickly here. Well, let's, let's just call down fire from heaven and eliminate the whole village. Seems so drastic. But then you realize it wasn't just any village. It was a Samaritan village. And then you begin to realize that this scene is steeped in race and cultural division. Us versus them. We already talked about how the Jews and Gentiles were at odds. How do the Samaritans factor in? Well, the Samaritans were those of Jewish descent left behind when most but not all the Jews were taken into Assyrian captivity in the Old Testament at about 700, in the 700s B.C. And the Assyrians brought in Gentile colonists to resettle the land, and they intermarried with the remaining Jews, and they mixed both their race and their religion. So when the Jews came back from captivity, they detested the mixed marriages and the mixed religion of the Samaritans. They wanted absolutely nothing to do with them. So much that if they were going to travel and it would make sense, according to the Maps app, to go through Samaria, they'd be like, no, we're going all the way around because I don't even want to share the same dirt on my feet with these people. And that bitterness did nothing but harden for five centuries to where we get in Luke 9, 54, where the disciples say, hey, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy these people? Again, it seems drastic and dramatic, but then you realize the script that they were operating from. One where it was us and them. This aggressive template of group against group. Let's napalm these fools, right? But Jesus rebukes them. One translation said, of course not. Of course not. And not only did he rebuke them in the moment, I love that later in the Gospels he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit. And in Acts chapter 1, he speaks again as he's about to leave of the Holy Spirit that's to come. And he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And we know from reading the book of Acts that he does come as tongues of fire. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and where? Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, oh, I'm going to send fire all right, but I'm not sending you with missiles. I'm sending you with the command to reconcile. Fire will fall. I'm going to send fire from heaven, but that's so you can be witnesses to Samaria. Not for warfare, but to be a witness. So that all can be saved and none can perish. That through the cross, every tribe, every tongue, every person, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, can be unified under the blood of Christ. People of many races and backgrounds unified to common purpose in the church. I don't know about your Bible, but in some translations, in my New Living Translation and also in the NIV, in verse 54, there's a little mark, because some translations include, at the end of this, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them like Elijah did? Like Elijah did. And this references the Old Testament. It wasn't far from this geographic location that the disciples were standing in, that Elijah had confronted the political powers of Israel and their prophets of Baal, calling the people to repentance and calling down fire from heaven. This scene was steeped not just in race, 
but God's prophet confronting political power. They use this example to justify their statement, should we eliminate them? I can imagine they're asking Jesus this, and his face immediately just turns into a screw face, like, are you serious? And they're like, but Elijah did it, right? Elijah did it, so, so is it okay? We think about Elijah and Ahab, John the Baptist and Herod. We might recall these pictures of God's mouthpieces confronting the godless leaders of their day, putting those people and them in their place. So we do the same. We can shout, shake our fist, name call, demonize, insult, rage. If we could call down fire, I think some of us would at times. But you know, in the 90s, it was, it was Bill Clinton running for office. And the author, Philip Yancey, he wrote an article for Christianity Today about Bill Clinton. And the editors of that magazine ended up titling it, Why Clinton Isn't the Antichrist. That might give you an idea of where a dialogue was in the church during that election. Reportedly, when Al Gore read it, he said to Bill, hey, uh, you got to start somewhere, right? You're not the Antichrist, so you're doing well. But Clinton would say to Yancey, I've been in politics long enough to expect criticism and hostility. But I was unprepared for the hatred I got from Christians. Why do Christians hate so much? You know, the polarization of politics hasn't changed much from the 90s. And the church still all too often gets caught up in it. You know, in the political realm of power, we can so quickly lose our grip on grace, operate ungracefully, lose our witness, even lose friends. And people are left asking, why do Christians hate so much? You know, it's interesting. You read the Gospels, people who thought differently than Jesus, lived differently than Jesus, were attracted to Jesus. It's almost like the church operates with a reverse magnetism. And it's because we've lost our grip on grace. You know, during the political season, there's slogans, there's bumper sticker taglines. The biggest one, obviously, in this election is make America great again, right? That's popular. But what should our chief focus as the church be? It should be to show America grace again. Where we've operated out of ungrace, insulting, name-calling, sometimes all outraging, let's return to the arsenal of grace. That you might look different than me, you might believe different than me, you might think or vote different than me, you might not even like me, but Jesus has called me to love you and show you grace. Without grace, I settle into disunity, even within the church. And if we settle into disunity, it doesn't matter what president is elected because God isn't going to bless division. Ultimately, we aren't going to be known by our political correctness, but our love and our grace. Jesus never let race or politics get in the way of his campaign of grace. Samaritan woman, Roman centurion, backwoods prophet, tax collectors, religious leaders, he engaged them all not to condemn or separate, but to draw not to draw lines in the sand, but to save and to unify. You know, a bumper sticker that Bill Clinton once read that, that really challenged him and hurt him was one that said, a vote for Bill Clinton is a sin against God. It's a pretty profound statement. But two decades later, I've seen similar statements on social media. People putting God with or against a vote for this candidate or that candidate in both ways. Either way. And no matter which direction you're going, it all has one thing in common. It breeds division. And I get it. This is a huge election. One where 
issues and policies are going to shape America for the next generation. We should be passionate about that. We should absolutely be wanting to get out and voice what we want through our vote. But we too often, I believe, as a church, envision ourselves like the disciples did in Luke 9 as, as the church's role is that of Elijah, confronting people and ready to call down fire from heaven to even eliminate them if we need to. But we ought to be careful and we ought to remember a scene from the beginning of Joshua. It's in Joshua 3, verses 13 through 15, where Joshua, he's called by God to lead what the Bible calls God's people. And the Old Testament shows us again and again, God loves these people. He's called these people. He protects these people. He leads these people all the way to the promised land. And when they get there, he calls Joshua to battle against Jericho. So Joshua is doing what he's called to do. He's out on doing some reconnaissance, praying, and he walk, comes up across a guy who's carrying a sword. So because Joshua's a boss, he says, hey, you with me or are you against me? He says, are you friend or foe? What's he asking? He's asking, are you with us or are you with them? Now, many theologians, they interpret this person that he comes across to be God manifest before Joshua. And what God says is, neither. I'm commander of the Lord's army. He's saying, I operate on another level. I'm the ultimate independent. I run things. The real question, the unspoken one that God poses to Joshua with that claim of commander, are you with me? And I love that Joshua's response is what? Falls down on his knees and he worships. Joshua says, I'm at your command. What do you want your servant to do? That's the heart of a follower of Christ. What, what do you want me to do? What are you commanding me to do? You look at our call as the great commission. Not destruction, but making disciples. Not causing division, but making disciples. Our commands, the two greatest commands Jesus gives us, love God and love people. Warfare, but to be a witness from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know, Jesus in Luke 9, 51, it says he was headed out resolutely for Jerusalem. Why was he headed there? To give himself to death on a cross. For who? His enemies. Who were his enemies? You, me, all of humanity. You know, the Bible says all have sinned. And sin isn't just some cute concept we talk about in church. It's rebellion against the king of kings, that commander of the Lord's armies. In its essence, it's a declaration of war. At its core, Sin declares war. Sin created a no man's land between us and God, and Jesus bridged the gap. You know, Romans 5, 8 through 10 says the following, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It's a powerful statement that we were God's enemies. It's a powerful thought that sin was no man's land, but Christ bridged the gap. And in a similar way, when our culture draws lines in the sand between us and them, we're called to cross no man's land and reach out even to our enemy. Those not like us, those who don't think like us, who don't look like us, who don't vote like us. Because not only does it reach them, but it grows us. It does. Jesus, again and again, I love that he takes the pattern of our culture, the pattern of our flesh, the pattern of our very instinct, and he flips it on its head. Like, you want to be greatest? Serve everybody. The first will be last. And he takes this instinct to, to form groups and, and be us versus them. And he, he says, get rid of that. Trash that. 
The pattern he shows on the cross is, is me for them, us for them. So how do we show America grace again? By embracing this perspective of us for them, even my enemy, even those who are different. You know, unity takes three things that we'll examine in this series. Unity takes three things. One, examining our perspective, being self-aware. What's my life experience? How does that inform my perspective? The second is reflecting on others' perspectives, listening to their perspective, seeking to understand and to empathize with others. But at its core, it takes one thing above all else, and that's adopting the perspective of Jesus. Not us versus them, but us for them. Just as he crossed no man's land that was caused by sin, we're called to cross no man's land and engage with those on the other side of whatever line society is drawn. Again, Jesus let no thing hinder his ministry, whether it was race or politics, Samaritan woman, Roman centurion, backwoods prophet, tax collectors, religious leaders. He engaged them all, not to condemn them, but to save them and unify them under his blood. You know, Tony Evans, a brilliant pastor, brilliant theologian, has spent most of his ministry, or a lot of his ministry, just dealing with this issue of unity, because he believes, again, it's not a sideline issue. It's essential in the church. And, and I love the illustration he gives of emulsification. It's a big word, emulsification. And hearing him tell it's hilarious, because this man loves sandwiches. He's uh, team mayonnaise. He loves mayonnaise on his sandwiches. I was both, but in my family, it was split between mayonnaise and mustard. My mom could never remember who liked what, so she was always putting the wrong thing on each sandwich. But Tony Evan loves mayonnaise on his sandwiches. But see, here's the thing. There's oil and water in mayonnaise ingredients. Totally different substances that don't mix. To make mayonnaise, it takes emulsification. Now, what emulsification is, is introducing another object that can relate to the objects that don't connect in order to bring them together and hold them together to create something new. Again, emulsification is introducing another object that can relate to the objects that don't connect in order to bring them together and hold them together to create something new. The emulsifier in mayonnaise is eggs. Put eggs in there and you can mix the water and the oil. The blood of Jesus Christ is the emulsification that pulls people together, creates something new, a unified church, different backgrounds coming together, different ways of thinking, genetics, ethnicity, all coming together under the blood of Christ in unity. You abandon the eggs, you don't get the mayonnaise. <laughs> you abandon the cross, you don't get unity. You know, we opened with Ephesians 2.16 where it says, together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups. He emulsified the groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. Come on, let's get out of the trenches. Let's seek the unity of one body and let's show America grace again. If I could have the, the worship team come up, I want to close with a story and then just practical steps. It was 1914, the first year of World War I, and uh, hundreds of thousands of soldiers are living in trenches. This is this terrible situation. And in the midst of this life in the trenches, there's a man named Henry Williamson who wrote home to his mother. He wrote home to his mother on December 26th of 1914, and this is what his letter said. He said, Dear Mother, I'm writing from the trenches. It's 11 o'clock in the morning. In my mouth is a pipe pre presented by the Princess Mary. In the pipe is tobacco. Of course, you say. 
But wait, in the pipe is German tobacco. Ha <laughs> ha, you say, from a prisoner or found in a captured trench? Oh dear, no. It's from a German soldier. Yes, a live German soldier from his own trench. Yesterday, the British and Germans met and shook hands in the ground between the trenches and exchanged souvenirs and shook hands. Yes, all day Christmas Day and as I write. Marvelous, isn't it? It happened thuswise, a word we don't use anymore. It says on Christmas Eve, both armies sang carols and cheered and there was very little firing. Then Germans in some places 80 yards away called to our men to come and fetch a cigar. And our men told them, come to us. This went on for some time, neither fully trusting the other until after much promising to play the game, a bold Tommy crept out and stood between the trenches. And immediately a Saxon came to meet him. They shook hands and laughed, and then 16 Germans came out. Thus the ice was broken. It's a powerful story about this ceasefire that was struck because of Christmas. The birth of Jesus Christ entering the picture, singing these carols, having that common ground. Jesus came not to separate, but to save and bring together. He emulsified opponents in one of the greatest conflicts in human history. We as followers, we're called to a permanent ceasefire, to break the ice with grace, to flip us versus them into us for them, to love even our enemies and open the door for God to move. So if we could stand, we're going to go into worship. But even before that, as we stand, I want to just give three practical steps real quick. That can help us move forward in this because we can talk about it till we're blue in the face. But if we don't practically move in it, then we won't grow. So here's three steps before we go into worship. The first is simply skip target practice. Your neighbor doesn't want you to see them as a target group. People aren't projects. You know, I live at Starbucks. <laughs> it's my office away from the office and it's become my home away from home. I walk in there and I'm moseying my way to the counter. By the time I get there, they've already got my drink ready because they know I'm there. But last time I was there, she's like, when you're here at 2, I just got out there at like 8.30. She's like, when it's 2 o'clock, you can come out with your receipt, get, get some pastries. And I was like, cool. But what's funny is there's a bunch of other people that do the same thing. People that I've learned their name. I've learned what they do. You know, there's a guy there that looks nothing like me. Has white hair, thick accent, dark skin, wears a, a, a gold chain with this huge pendant, right? His name's... He goes by Randy. And we, we had talked a couple times, but just yesterday we talked for almost an hour. I realized he's a man of deep faith. Probably in that hour he quoted about half the Bible, right? This man just has so much of the Bible memorized. And what's so amazing is he's an immigrant from India. So this is where Steph and I are adopting from and just realizing this man is going to be a gift. I began to ask him questions immediately, showing him pictures of Raj and talking about his Indian-American experience. What has it been like? And it's just a reminder to me to ditch the savior complex. You know, sometimes we think we're out there to just save everybody, but sometimes God calls us to unity because it blesses us. Again, it, it, it blesses us. He's gonna be such a blessing to me as I prepare to raise an Indian American son. He's gonna be a blessing to Raj as they meet him. And again, you genuinely love on some people. You don't know what God is, might move and do. But then second thing, be a lifelong learner. I talk about I've been asking this man about his Indian American experience because guess what? I'm pretty ignorant of what the Indian American experience is. I'm a white male that's grown up on the east coast of America. Other experiences I don't know about. Waking up every day 
with a vow to serve and protect, wearing a badge. But I know cops and I've been able to learn what their life experience was like. I don't have the experience of an African-American male trying to raise his family in America. But I know enough to where I can ask them questions. What is it, what is it like? What is your experience like? You know, every relationship with another person of another experience is an opportunity to learn. An opportunity to step outside of our tendency to judge everything from our life experience and live from a deeper perspective and broader lens. That grows empathy, and empathy grows unity, and ultimately it grows me. And then lastly, refill your tank. Look, we're human. <laughs> it's so easy for us to shift from graceful to ungraceful, especially when Man, social media right now is just a, a constant chorus of people crying wolf. And empathy can just turn into apathy where, man, I was talking to somebody yesterday. It's like, man, I don't, I'm just running out of grace for people. And I was like, hey, me too. How many of you guys have been there, right? I'm just running out of grace for people. Simple advice, get off Facebook for a while. That'll renew your mind like no other. But have somebody you can, you can vent to, reflect with, come to an understanding with. But then lastly, take that tank to God. Reflect again on the perspective of Christ, which was me for them. Not us against them, but us for them. Every person I run out of grace for, I struggle to have compassion for. He had so much compassion for, he died for on the cross so that they could receive grace. So let's show America grace again. But that's not going to happen naturally or automatically. It's going to happen with us being intentional about our relationships with others. And it's going to happen with us being intentional about our relationship with God and Jesus Christ. So come on, let's take our hearts and our grace to God even now. Again, let's stand as we go into worship. We're going to sing it as well. But God, I just pray that you would fill our grace tanks. God, that we would be able to walk in empathy with a greater witness and a greater heart for unity and understanding because we're fueled by your love. That wasn't us versus them, which is our instinct and the instinct of our flesh. But Lord God, it was us for them. God, help no line in the sand that our society would draw hold us back from the people that you want us to reach. You might want us to reach them so that they can end up in the church, they can receive salvation. That's always my first instinct in Starbucks. Give them a reach card, invite them to church. But God, there might be people we meet, we build relationship with that are a gift to us, that broaden our lens, that broaden our perspective, make us a better witness for the love of Jesus Christ. We thank you that your grace covers everyone, every tribe, every tongue. God, we worship you tonight. We thank you that while we were your enemy, you died for us. <laughs> while we were in sin, you showed us grace. You died on a cross for us, and we worship you for that tonight. Your name is precious. Your blood is precious. We praise you for it in the name of Jesus.